producing some beautiful music from a lady that's not feeling very well over there. So we really appreciate the effort you put into that, Mary, and hope you get to feeling better. Even after I thought, boy, when she got done with all this stuff here in this uh, kidney stone, she'd really be bouncing around, but now she's still not feeling the greatest. So, I'll bet you were. <laughs> oh, boy. Next Sunday. We plan on having communions next Sunday. And so pray that you'll keep that in mind and heart as we prepare for that and the importance of that, that uh, ordinance that the Lord has given us to remember his death and remember his coming. He said we're to commemorate through the cup, bread in the cup, until he comes. And so we want to be faithful to do that. And so next Sunday, August 16th, just take note of that, and we'll be having communion service next week. And, of course, we've got the other announcements that I've been making for several weeks. Um, a couple of weeks now, we'll be heading to Nassau and carrying some Bibles. I always wondered, I've been carrying a box of those Bibles around in my car, I got one in the house, one in the car, and I gave one to Tracy Daniels because it can make him responsible for packing up some of them. And would you believe Friday night, somebody, we, now we had the habit of not always locking our cars, and somebody got into all three of our cars Friday night, and apparently all they wanted was money. They took what little bit of change was in the, in the ashtray and took all the stuff out of the glove compartments and kind of left it scattered around in the front seat and so on. And they, that box of Bibles, they tore it open and saw what it was and then just went on and left it there. Didn't have anything to do with them not taking the money, though. They, they, did take, they didn't get much, 4 or $5 and change between all three cars. So <clears throat> we did survive that, but uh, just... Uh, a word to remind you, an economy like we have, it pays to keep your, door, your doors locked, house and car, and ours will be locked from now on. So, anyway, we survived that. Yeah, valuables out of sight. Yeah. Even if it's locked. <laughs> well, Krista was, she said she heard something, but... She's always hearing something. So she talked herself out of it, said, ah, it's probably nothing, you know. She said, but I thought I heard a door just, you know, like creaking shut. And she said, but she even did get up and turn the light on and even opened the door and looked outside. And uh, as far as she went, she was glad she said I didn't go outside. But um, she said, now, <laughs> the bad part about it is every little noise I hear, I'm going to have to get up and go check it out now. So anyway, we made it through that. August, so that we're leaving on the 19th. John Bales, remember, will be here on the 23rd to speak. And then on the 13th, we said Fred Bennett would be here. And um, he'll be speaking on the Jewish holidays that occurred during the month of uh, September, primarily. Um, Yom Kippur and 
I'm not sure. I don't remember now what else. All the three. There's three little, three little things or four maybe in there that he said he was going to speak on or touch on. And then, I don't know if anybody's heard about September 11th and tw- the 12th. That's Friday and Saturday. Uh, Lewis Shuttle is having a meeting at his house over in, um, well, it's not, it's actually Blairsville, Georgia. And I'm announcing it publicly, so I don't know. He's got room for about 50 people. <laughs> he's got this little section in his garage. He's setting up about 50 chairs there. He's, and, and it's, I've seen, I've been there, you know, I've seen it. It's kind of a tight quarters, but he's got the room there. And he's having uh, some folks come in to speak. He's having Arlen come, Jim Brooks. Um, hmm. And a third person. Not me. I'm trying to think. Well, I forget now who it was. There's three. But Arlen's, Arlen's one of them. And Jim Brooks, whom I think most of you here know, he's going to be speaking as well. Now, it's kind of like he said, it's by an invitation only. So I'm inviting you, <laughs> just so you all know. So if you go and he says, well, what are you doing here? You can just say, well, Alan said we could come. Uh, it may be standing room only by that time. I don't know where all people's going to come from. Don't know who will be there. You know, obviously he cannot handle a large crowd, but if some would like to go over, we could maybe ride over together or something. Uh, it's a Friday night. Walt knows of a great place to eat over there in Blairsville at Brasstown. I've actually been there, eaten there several times myself, six or seven or eight or ten, maybe, I don't know, quite a few, and I enjoy that. But anyway, I wanted you to know about it. I know that probably wouldn't everybody go, but if you have an interest in going, that's the 11th and 12th. It's a Friday and a Saturday. Then, of course, the very next Sunday, uh, Fred Bennett will be here, so... If you stay for Saturday, that means it's going to be a late trip back. It's a two-hour drive over there. And, of course, coming back, it'd be two hours, so you'd be late getting in Saturday night. But uh, anyway, I wanted to let you know about that because if you would like to go, I'm quite sure there'll be, there'll be some room for three or four or five couples from our church to be there. Okay, Matthew chapter 20. Well... Let's look at chapter 24 to begin with. We're actually going to end up in chapter 25. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 24, glad to have our guests with us, Matt and Zach, sitting right up here on the front row with Grandma and Grandpa. We're grateful to have them. Okay, Matthew 24. And what I want to look at this morning was, beginning in chapter 24 and verse 45, was just to look at some of these things concerning the servants here of the Lord. And he says there, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season? And we talked about servants last week in Luke chapter 12. Here, again, the Lord's dealing with the faithfulness of servants. And he tells us in verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing, that is, being faithful. And this word blessed, we often see in some modern translations, is translated as happy. And it most certainly would include happiness. 
But blessed is, uh, I think, a little more than just happy. It's more than just exuberance. Uh, It's more than just joy. But it's all of those things combined together. That is to say, in that day, when the Lord comes and he finds his servant faithful, it's going to be a, a joy and a blessedness and a happiness and an exuberance that will overwhelm the soul. It's just like sometimes certain events have occurred and maybe you did something, maybe not even realizing you were doing something that would benefit you or prosper you, but after the fact, when it happened, you said to yourself, boy, am I ever glad. And then, you know, you did whatever it was that you did. Because once it was over with, you knew there wasn't any more opportunity to maybe correct or do again whatever that event might have been. You're just glad that you did it. Because when certain things came to pass, it proved to be a benefit or profit to you. And that's the kind of a picture you get with the Lord's return is that when his servants have been found faithful, that is, you were just, basically you were just doing what you were supposed to be doing. Or as one famous preacher said, just do right. And you'd be mighty glad that you did. And you'd be very happy that you did what was right. Now the Lord uses some examples and some pictures, parables, to teach us exactly what he was talking about. And, of course, they're set in the customs of, uh, of, the, of the Middle East and the culture of that day. <clears throat> and he talks about um, his master here in chapter 24 about him being gone and then returning to find out what was going on with his servants. And, of course, one was faithful. But in verse 48 he says, but... And if that evil servant shall say in my heart, my Lord delayeth his coming. How many times do you think kids have been left home alone and their parents maybe went out shopping or they went out for a date and they felt like their kids were old enough to be left at home alone? Ooh, that's a scary word in it, home alone. You've seen the parts of that movie? Home alone. Boy, then the things all that kid got into. But how many times have something something happened and brother or sister said, just wait until mom and dad get home. Woo! And you're sitting there waiting knowing judgment's coming. (laughs) But in this case... The warning's given ahead of time. And the Lord's waiting for their return. Or for they're waiting for the Lord's return. Waiting, anticipating the judgment that's, that's to come. The account that they're going to have to give. But the evil servant says in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. Now, if we turn over to chapter 25... And beginning with verse 14, 
There's a parable here or a story about three servants. And in verse 19, you have the same kind of a situation. It says, after a long time, the Lord of those servants come. Or the master. The master of those servants comes and he reckons with them. He calls them to account. Now, going back to verse 14 then, let's just take a look at this parable and see if we can glean a few things from what he's teaching his disciples concerning his coming and the kingdom of the heavens. For the kingdom of heaven, in verse 14, he says, is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, or his own ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Now, after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and he reckons with them. And so... He that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, now he's got an excuse. I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed, and I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. Well, his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed, and thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and that at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, a lengthy story, but some, quite frankly, some simple things here 
on the one hand, some difficult on the other. But at the beginning of this parable, we note that he said he called them his own servants. Now, this is an overriding principle for this entire, this entire story, this entire parable. He called them his own servants. And, and a second thing that is very vital to this and connected with it and delivered unto them his goods. That is, the master took what was his, what was rightfully his possessions, and he entrusted it to the care of these three servants. Now, it's amazing, and I know that some of you are very well aware, how you can read through this parable and look at what some of the commentators have to say about it and do wonderful, excellent justice to the entire parable concerning these servants, recognizing that they're the Lord's servants, recognizing that he has entrusted to them his goods, and yet when they come to the third servant, somehow just, it's like a giant leap. And without any proof or discussion, just somehow transform this servant into somebody that's not the Lord's servant and say that he's lost. And of course, the first thing I would say when he delivered unto them his goods is the Lord does not entrust to his own servants or to those that are not his servants, I should say, to those that are not his servants, his goods. They are not responsible for caring for, their master, for the master's goods if they weren't and if he wasn't their master. But to claim him as master at the beginning of the parable and then somehow at the end of the parable change the, the, the servant from to somebody who's not a servant and declared that he's lost, you know, doesn't even do justice and just plain common sense. That we ought to be able to read this straightforward without any preconceived theological notions of what takes place at the end of this parable in the casting of that servant into outer darkness. In other words... We ought to read it like we would read any other kind of literature. And we, we look at the context of what's being said and we allow the conclusion to stand. I mean, is that not what a lawyer does? Is that not what a judge pronounces in a court of law? When he examines the evidence and if he is a just judge, then he will just simply let the evidence stand. It speaks for itself. Now, of course, having said that, I suppose I have to make a comment about the judge that was just appointed on our Supreme Court. And one of the comments or arguments made against this appointment was not following the letter of the law. 
not allowing law to govern the decision, but to allow opinion or emotion or some other factor to enter in. I think race was brought up or nationality because she happens to be Hispanic. And, of course, we have to recognize that earthly judges are not perfect. And she may come out with a splendid record on the court. I have no idea. That's not my point. My point is, is that the principle of the legal system that we have in America demands the rule of law. Law is up here. It takes precedence over everything. And so everything that is adjudicated is done so by recognizing the superiority of law. And decisions are rendered based on the facts of a case in respect to what the law states. Well, we read a passage like this. Should we not do the same thing? Should we not just simply look at the facts of a passage and allow the facts to stand? And whatever the outcome of the case was here, not try to change it. Not try to make it say something else. But just simply let it stand for what it says. And that's, that's what we're going to attempt to do here. And I don't think it's that difficult personally. But because of the concerns of this judge, whom certain men and women did not want appointed to this court, because of what they deemed preconceived notions on her part, men turn right around and do with the scriptures. They do the same thing. They carry their preconceived notions into this passage and then make the outcome fit what they think it ought to say. Now, we already saw from the very beginning of this passage that he calls them his own servants, all three of them. We also see, or will see, that he treats them all equally when he calls them to account. And then that he delivered unto them his own goods. And he would not entrust the care of his goods to someone outside of his household. It would be to his own servants that he would do so. Now, if we've established that these are servants of his own household, and he's delivered unto them his goods, the master of the house, then... Let's look at what he gave to them. And it tells us here in verse 15, he says, Unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability or his own ability, his own unique abilities. And straightway he took his journey. Now, this verse is a governing verse over the next couple of few verses because he repeats what he just said, only he gives us more detail about the giving of the five talents, the two talents, and the one talent. And the point he makes in this verse is that he gave to each one of these servants according to 
his ability. Now, the word ability is from the word, very common word, Greek word that we know, dunamis, which means often in many contexts we could translate it as power or authority. And here they've translated it as ability. The ability in the sense of the power, the strength that each one of these servants had to take care of the master's goods. And so, obviously, one had far more ability than the rest because he got five talents, five measures. The second one got two, and then the third one got just the one. So he didn't have the abilities. He did not have the wherewithal or the means to care for five talents. Matter of fact, he didn't even have the ability to care for two. At least we would presume that. I think that's a fair presumption. Otherwise, he would have been given two. It says he gave according to their ability. Had he had the ability to care for two or five, then you could reasonably expect that that's exactly what he would have received. But he only had the ability to care for the one. Now, it tells us there in verses 16, 17, 18, exactly what happened. During the absence of the master, here's what they took and did with their talents. The one with five doubled his. He went out and got five more. The one with two doubled his. He got two more. And the picture we get here of what the Lord expects of us with what he's given to each one of us is to double what we have. And you know, it's not a difficult thing for the guy with two to do any more or less than the guy with five, nor the guy with five to do any more or less than the guy with two because they each had the same ability. So it was not unfair on the master's part to give one five and say, look, this is what you're going to have to do. You've got to take those five and double them to another five over the guy that had two or the guy that had one and expect them to double theirs because it was according to their ability to do so. And the Lord fully expected him to do so. Now, it was after a long time that the Lord of those servants comes and he reckons with them. He calls them to account. He wants to see if they were able to double what he had entrusted to their care. Had they done anything with it? Well, we find the ones that had five and two doubled theirs. The one that had the one just dug a hole in the earth and buried it. Knowing that his Lord would return one day and he would hand it back to him. Say, here you go. You gave me one talent. He dug it up out of the earth, brushed it off, cleaned it up, handed it back to the master and said, here you go. You got your one talent back. Now, throughout the passage, when he deals with the one with five talents and the one with two talents, the Lord commended them for what they had done. 
as we would have expected. They met their responsibility. But when it came to rewarding them, he treated them exactly the same. Because each one had done exactly what the Lord expected of them. They had doubled what he entrusted to their care. And so when he says, I will make thee ruler over many things, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord in verse 21. In verse 23, he says the same thing to the one who had gained two more, who had doubled his two to four. I will make thee ruler over many things, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. The same language. And so the prosperity of these two who had been given a responsibility over a few things now turned into great profit and joy in the benefit of being a ruler over many things. And when you compare the two, that is, being ruler over many things with the responsibility of gaining or doubling what the Lord had given them and given them the responsibility over, it brought them great joy. What joy came because of being rulers. Prospering in, the, in that sense, in that relationship, Then in verse 24, the one with the one talent. Most of this parable, most of it is taken up in dealing with the man with one talent. And he says, then he which had received the one talent... Now, I want to stop right there for a moment because I want us to focus on that word received. Then the one that had received the one talent. If you go back to verse 20, so he that had received five talents. And then in verse 22, he also that had received two talents. Now, it's the same Greek word in all three instances. But in the first two instances, it's an aorist tense. In the third instance, it's in perfect tense. And that's significant. Because it tells us, you know, actually it's it's second aorist. But they tell us that there's very little distinction and mean practically the same thing. But the point of it is, is that these two, the five-talent man, the two-talent man, that which they had received, because it was in the aorist tense, when you compare that with the man who had received one perfect tense, tells us that the one-talent man the one talent that he had received, remember perfect tense, carries forward a a continuous or a permanent state. 
And so he's telling us even here in, in the grammar, in the language, that the one who had received one talent still had only one talent. Whereas the ones who had received five and two, we often speak of aorist tense as being something of an, of an event. And it was, but it was not of a permanent nature because they went out then and doubled what the Lord had given them. The master of the house had given them to be responsible over. And so then this one who had received the one, when he brought it back to his Lord, was in the exact same condition and state as it was when the Lord returned. But it also tells us something about the servant. Because the state of that servant, the condition in which he was on the day that he received that one talent, after this long period of time, when the master came back and called him to account, found that servant in the same condition as he was when he received the one talent. And as a result of that, the Lord calls him a wicked and slothful servant in verse 26. Now, what's the idea here? What's the whole point? If somebody gives us something and, and we have a responsibility for it, then we're expected to care for it. And in the Lord's economy, we're expected to multiply it. Now, we're not expected to multiply beyond what he's entrusted to our care or the ability that we have other than to double it. He doesn't expect us to triple it, quadruple it, or anything else. The picture we have in this parable is to double what you have, to give increase, to make a gain. In other words, to prosper with what God has blessed us with and entrusted to our care. Now, we might ask ourselves, and in this case, it is talents is money. It's a word for silver. But we might ask ourselves, well, what does the Lord entrust to us? What does he expect me to do with what I have? Well, we understand that he's talking about far more than just money here. He doesn't require or expect all of us to be investors or bankers, you know, just in the realm of finances or money. But he's entrusted certain responsibilities or gifts to us that he expects us to use. I think one of those primarily, now we could go on and name a lot of things, but primarily the spiritual gifts that he's entrusted to us. We're to use them. We're not to sit back. You know, if, if I, and I think I've told you this, I think my number one gift is as a teacher. That's the responsibility I have. But if I were to sit back and just enjoy someone else's teaching, which, by the way, I enjoy doing an awful lot, I always enjoy coming into Sunday school class and 
hearing Jerry. I enjoy hearing others. What, what, a, what a, you know, that'd be a great thing. Come to the end of the week, man, you don't have anything. I don't have to do any sermon preparation. Don't have to do any study. Don't have to get up at four or five o'clock on Sunday morning. I just come to church and I hear Jerry. And all this while, over many, many years, I've had the ability to do the same thing. But I just didn't use it. In other words, I just buried it. And some of us, I'm afraid we do that. We tend to hide or not make use of what the Lord's entrusted to our care. And to double it requires that we use it. We just simply have to step out, recognize how God has blessed us and provided for us. Whether it's administration, whether it's hospitality, whether it's teaching, um, you know, whatever that gift may be. And that would be a, a subject for another day to study those gifts and how we might implement them. But Peter tells us that each one of us has give, been given at least one gift in First Peter. And so we need to take, you know, that, that puts us in some interesting company, doesn't it? If we've been given at least one gift, we recognize I'm in the same company of the one-talent person here, the one-talent servant. And I have to take the responsibility that he should have taken but didn't. Then we find that there were some heavy consequences because he called him the wicked and slothful servant. Wickedness. How can a Christian be called wicked and slothful or lazy? Well, I want us to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because there are those who would say that language just simply does not fit a Christian. That couldn't be. Matter of fact, I've heard people say, does that even sound like a Christian? Well, unfortunately, I think sometimes it does. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And look at, now look in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. And Paul, writing to uh, the church at Corinth, a very troubled church, many problems. And there's a big one here. Because in verse 1, it says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. So that was a pretty grievous sin that had been committed within the bounds, within the structure, within the body of the church. But notice what he says in verse 5. He says, well, when they gather together, verse 4 he says, when you're gathered together, he says, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We can't be talking about 
an unregenerate person, somebody who's not a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look over, well, sorry, in my Bible I have to turn the page, but turn over to verse 13. You may not even have to turn over, just go down to verse 13, and look what it says there. Now we're still in the same subject here concerning this one who had sinned. By the way, look at verse 11 before we do this. He says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator. Well, that was the situation with this, this, this man here in verses 1 and 2. To keep company with him. Verse 13, or 12, he says, For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. And the word wicked here is the same word translated wicked back in Matthew chapter 25. This one in the church, accused of this crime of fornication, he says, remove that wicked person from you. Now, back in Matthew chapter 25, we find that's exactly what happens to this young man. Well, I say young man. He probably wasn't a young man at this point in time because it says the Lord, the master of that house had been gone for a long time. But the consequences were the same. Because if you look in verse 30, he says, Cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness or into the darkness outside there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth and so the consequences to this servant of not taking care or not doubling the talent that the Lord had given him turned out to be pretty costly because not only was he cast out into the darkness outside But the one talent that he had was taken away from him. He went out empty-handed with absolutely nothing. If you look in verse 27, he tells him, now, of course, he says, you knew knew that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. I mean, this was a guy who knew that he was going to be judged. He knew what an austere man That's the the word used over in in Luke in the same account. You knew what an austere man I was. And yet, you just went and took the talent and buried it and did nothing with it. Now he tells him in verse 27, You ought therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at thy coming I should have received mine own with usury. Now I'm going to tell you something. That's interesting. Because the Lord himself went to the temple where the money exchangers were. And you know how he upset all the tables and lashed out at them for what they were doing in the father's house. He said, you know, my father's house is a house of prayer. And you are in here profiting Selling, buying and selling 
And yet he tells this servant, rather than having done nothing, buried your talent, the very least thing you could have done was to give it to the exchangers and let them invest it. They would have paid you some interest. And they were going to turn around and loan it out at a higher interest, just like bankers do today. And then he says, at my coming, I should have received my own with usury. I'd have had a gain, some profit. But as it was, this wicked and slothful servant was of no profit to, to the Lord, to his Lord, just like we can be to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then he says, take therefore the talent from him. And left him empty-handed with absolutely nothing. And he cast him out. Cast him out, we find by comparing some other scriptures, cast him out of the kingdom. Of course, the context here is the kingdom of the heavens. He was cast out, removed, into the darkness outside. I like one writer, he he expressed it this way. He said, cast him into the clouds of darkness at the Lord's appearing. Because the Lord's going to appear with a very bright light. Now, of course, there's far more to it than just that. But the point being is there will be no joy at the Lord's return for that servant who has taken his talent and hidden it and done nothing with it. Consequently, disciples of the Lord, followers of Jesus Christ are to be profitable to their master. We are to be beneficial to him. In our service to him. And that means that we we don't sit back on our laurels. We don't sit back and just wait. Like this one talent servant did. And just wait for the Lord to come back. In dealing with the, the ten virgins. The principle there was watchfulness. To be prepared and ready when the Lord comes. Watch therefore. Matter of fact, in verse 13, at the end of that, look at chapter 24, verse uh, 13, or uh, excuse me, 25, verse 13, I'm sorry. Concerning the ten virgins, he says, Watch therefore, for ye know not the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. That was the lesson there. But the lesson with these three servants is work. On the one hand, we're to watch, but on the other hand, we're to work. And you get the idea here that because the one talent person knew his Lord, he knew he was a hard man, that he probably was watching for his return. But he wasn't working. He knew he was going to come back, it wasn't like he had no idea that he was you know, caught by surprise. I mean, it was just like, well, Lord, here you are. Dig it all up. Give it back. Here's your one talent you gave me. And the picture you get there is, it seemed like he felt pretty good about it. But the judgment of the Lord on him was not so good. And so it was very costly to cast him out because... It was unprofitable.
Well, that's a scary thought to me. I don't want to be found unprofitable. And I don't know just where I fall. I don't think I'm a five-talent person by any means. I may be two. I may be one. I may be three for all I know or four. I just know that what God has given me, what I have the ability to do, I can't, I can't sit down. I can't take it easy. I can't just vacation my way through this Christian life. But I've got to make some use of it. And as I look to the future, I think to myself, boy, whether I live another five years, ten, or twenty, I've got to keep doing what I'm doing today. I can't back off. I've got to keep going. And I say these things that we might be encouraged to do the same thing, that we might redouble our efforts, redouble our commitment to Christ, that we might be found faithful to him in that day. When we come to take communion next Sunday, you see, that's, that's a visible outward commitment that we are making by participating in such a rite, such a sacrament, as that which the Lord has given us tells us that I have redoubled my commitment. I've not given up. I'm staying where I'm at. I'm going to continue on with the Lord Jesus Christ. To take that cup and do otherwise is very unprofitable and very harmful. And we certainly don't want to do that. It'd be better off just to pass it on by and not participate. And I... I know people that have done that. I don't, I don't remember now if the situation was he was caught. It was a guy. He was caught by surprise, didn't know that they were going to have communion that Sunday. And he knew in his heart he wasn't ready for that. So he just passed it on and didn't participate. And I thank the Lord I've never had to do that yet. And I don't want to. <laughs> I always want to be ready. And I think we should all be ready and prepared. Always watching, always working. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that you give us in the midst of such dark and stark realities of judgment to come. And what the awful consequences are to those who are unprepared. To those who have not profited by what you've given them. And I pray, Lord, that we would... Search ourselves, examine ourselves. As Paul told the church at Corinth to see whether we be in the faith and whether we be walking according to your word so that we might know the joy of the Lord and know the exquisite joy of being a ruler in your house, being a ruler in your kingdom and sharing in all the, the blessedness that will occur in that coming day. Grant it, Father, that we would understand those things, and we'll give you all the thanks and the praise. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.